The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Once read of a research project that was conducted in an attempt to figure out how much a parent's attitude and behavior influenced the attitude and behavior of their young kids. The kids who were being targeted were pre-toddlers, those who couldn't quite walk, but they could crawl. And one experiment that I remember in particular saw a platform with parents on one side, a parent on one side, and a crawling child on the other. And in the middle, there was a clearly visible great big hole. A very large drop-off, particularly for a child, but it was covered over with a piece of plexiglass. So you could crawl right across it. The idea was that the, the child would crawl up to the edge, would look in, you know, they're crawling, so looking right in, then would look at their parent, look in, look at the parent, and try to figure out what to do. And alternatingly, the parent would first, only with facial clues, give signs of danger and warning and discouragement. I want to see if the child would stop. Then they'd switch things and the parent would give encouraging, smiling, loving signs of safety and see if the child would crawl across despite what was right there in front of the child's eyes. And I don't really remember how this experiment turned out, what the results were, and I really don't know if it was a sound experiment. Maybe there were some flaws in it, I don't know. But it is an interesting subject, isn't it? The question of asking, can a child, can a person learn to read his or her environment in the face of, through the eyes of an older and wiser parent? Can he come to trust? Can this child come to rely on someone else's understanding of the situation despite what the circumstances might indicate? It's an interesting question. I wonder how you and I would do in a grown-up version of that experiment. Put God on one side of the platform and you and I on the other and put in the middle clearly visible to us all a great chasm with all of the difficulties and trials and hardships of life. I wonder if we would crawl up to it and look in and if we would be struck with and, and impressed with resolute trust in Him, if we would learn to, if we could learn to read our circumstances in His face. In a way, that is the issue in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of those Old Testament minor prophets, called minor not because what he said was less important, but because what he wrote was shorter. His book, Habakkuk, is only about three chapters long. But those three chapters contain in them an encouraging and a challenging message about faith, about trust in God amidst hardships in life that are clearly visible. It's a message about trusting Him when life says that we shouldn't. We're going to spend about two months in this book, and my hope is that God will use it to grow in us something, to elevate Himself in our minds and hearts, 
such that we'll look at him and be shaped by him and we'll look at everything else differently. That's what I want him to do in my life. I want him to use this book. I've been studying it and reading it. I hope that he uses this book to help me, inside of me, connect a couple of things. To connect, on the one hand, an honest appraisal of what life is like sometimes. To connect that to the God who is. The God of the Bible. The God who describes himself as holy and just and righteous and mighty. That's what I hope he does in me. To to create in me and in you and in us tenacious faith. Persistent faith. We need that. We need to see him and trust him above all other things. Come what may in life. Habakkuk is going to address that. And that's why we're looking at Habakkuk. Spend about seven weeks here in this book. I hope that this message gets through to you and that it grabs you and changes you and gives you this kind of a steadfast faith. Procedural note before we get started. I'll continue to preach from the English Standard Version because I'm impressed with its accuracy of translation. But we're not going to be printing the text in the bulletin anymore. Switching to the Old Testament, the passage is just too long to make that practical. But if you would still like to follow along in the same translation that I'm reading and preaching from and you haven't yet purchased your own, there will be copies of the Bible back on the table next to church office and you can pick one up as you come in and drop it off as you go out and follow through if you'd like. Now as we turn to today's text in Habakkuk chapter 1, a little bit of background information is in order. Habakkuk is, as I said, in the Old Testament It's a small book. It's about 20 pages, if you're looking for it, about 20 pages from the end of the Old Testament, right in front of the book of Matthew. And it's small, so it's easy to miss. You'll find in there it's it's Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. If you see any of those, you're in the right neighborhood. We don't know much about this prophet or about his broader ministry, but there are clues within the book itself that tell us about when it was written. Between the years 800 and 600 B.C., and remember the years before Christ count down towards zero. So the 200 years between 800 and 600 saw the nation of Israel as a divided nation. There were ten tribes in the north, known as Israel proper, and there were two tribes in the south, known as Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. The main power in the whole region at the time was the empire of Assyria. Assyria was ruthless and it was strong. And during this period, it invaded and annihilated those ten northern tribes and carried them all off into exile. And then, after that, it subsequently was invaded and destroyed by the country of Babylon, which tells you something about Babylon's power. Well, all that was going on in the north, in the south, Judah had been steadily sliding further and further and further away from the Lord. There were, of course... Some bright points, the reign of Josiah the king would be an example. He was a good king who reigned for quite a while. But overall, things were not going well. And by the time that Habakkuk wrote, about 600 B.C., King Jehoiakim sat on the throne and the land was just awash in apostasy. And it was inviting the same judgment from God that he poured out in the northern tribes. Morally and ethically and religiously, the land was, so to speak, circling the bowl. Things were not going well. And that is the context in which Habakkuk lived and struggled and prayed and eventually wrote this book. 
See some of that reflected here in chapter 1. Let me read Habakkuk chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11 this morning, and I'll read from the English Standard Version. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth, perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, and they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Before we focus on a couple of key points in this passage, first we need to walk back through it to make sure that we understand what's going on. The book begins with verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. He saw an oracle, literally that is a heavy burden, words often used to describe something carried by a pack animal. It is sometimes, as here, also used to indicate a prophetic word from the Lord. This is weighty stuff. It's heavy. What Habakkuk saw revealed to him by God is no light matter. It's not just intriguing. It's going to sit on him heavy. What we're going to see from the Lord might sit on us heavy. But the first words here are actually Habakkuk's in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? How long? Day after day and night upon night the prophet has lifted up his hands and his voice and his cry to the Lord of heaven. He's carried his circumstances that he sees everywhere. He's carried them up to God. Lord, look. Look at your inheritance. Look at those of us who are righteous here. Look around at the plight we're in. Look what's going on right amongst your people, Lord. Rampant lawlessness everywhere. Save. Help. That's what Judah and Jerusalem itself was like at his time. And so he's praying that to God. He's concerned here. And day after day and night upon night, nothing in reply. Not a thing, no help, no deliverance, no sign that God even heard, just more violence. Why do you make me see iniquity? 
And why do you passively look at all this? How can you do that? Destruction and violence and strife and contention. It's all of it everywhere, right before my eyes. Catch the prophet's attitude here, his angst. He's piling up words here in this verse. Now, obviously, each word means something a little bit different, but the point is that they all paint the same picture. It's an awful place, filled with wickedness, right in the holy city of Jerusalem, right before his eyes. It's where Habakkuk lives. The law of God is paralyzed. Just judgments never go forth. This doesn't happen anymore. Instead, the wicked twist and they turn things so that they overpower the righteous. They make the law actually to support evil and not good. How long, Lord? Why don't you act? Fix this. You can catch his mood. But it's important to notice something about this complaint. Note carefully what it is that he's upset by. It's not primarily the wickedness itself. I'm sure he probably was bothered by that. But that's not the bottom level problem. The main problem is the silence of God. He cries out to him. He looks at all the trouble. He speaks to his righteous rock, God, his deliverer, his savior, his sure defense. And God says nothing. God does nothing. He just keeps reading a sports page while all around and the house is burning down. What's going on, Lord? Wake up. Fix this. Are you blind? Are you deaf? That's the problem. Suddenly, in verse 5, the Lord closes up the paper, sets it aside, and addresses Habakkuk. There's some astounding things to say to him here. He's not actually just speaking only to Habakkuk, though all of his statements in verse 5 are in the plural. He's speaking to Habakkuk and to him, to all of his rest, the rest of his people. He's delivering an astounding message to his people, not just to one of his people. He's speaking to us. Four commands in verse 5. Very sudden, look, see, wonder, be astounded. There is no expected or common transition statement like, and the Lord replied, or even a, a thus saith the Lord. There's none of that. It's just a sudden turn with four commands. Very abrupt. God is saying, in essence, buckle up. This is going to blow your minds. I have something to say to you all. I'm going to tell you something that you will not believe. I'm going to tell it to you, and you're going to say, no way. I am doing something. I'm about to do something very soon in your lifetime. And let's be very clear here. I am the one doing it. I'm not delivering to you a message of some vague, it's going to happen, or somebody else is going to do something, and I'm going to turn it to be something else. I am doing this. I myself, I am the Lord of heaven and earth, and I am on the move, and I'm going to do something here. Behold, I raise up Babylon, the Chaldeans. That word gets everybody's attention who's reading this, who's hearing this. The Babylonians? How in the world can that be? How can God himself... Be the one raising up that bitter and rash and wicked and idolatrous nation. How can that be? 
And how can that be any answer to my cry for justice? That's not an answer. That's a greater problem. I don't believe it. Just like God said you wouldn't. The alarm this answer generates will come up more clearly in next week's passage. But for now, we see in the next, from verse 6 and a half down to 11, we see these Chaldeans, the people of Babylon, described their attitudes and their behavior. At this point, as, as I said already, they'd already knocked off Assyria and they'd also done the same to Egypt. Those are the two other contenders for power in the area. They destroyed both of them, and though they hadn't yet conquered the whole region, they were certainly on the march. They were clear conquerors, and they were clear powers. They were a law unto themselves, and they had the military might to back it up. They were clearly bent on conquering the whole area, and after knocking off these other two guys, all the other little bitty countries and little bitty city-states and little bitty kings, like Judah and Jerusalem, were a laughingstock to them, a pushover. And what the Lord has just announced is that he is the one who has made that happen and that he is summoning them to come up to Jerusalem and do his bidding. It is astounding. We know looking back that less than 15 years after this was written, Jerusalem would be a wasteland and the temple would be destroyed at the hand of God's errand boys, the Babylonians. It is a remarkable statement from the Lord. Now, of course, there's more to this story, and we'll see it unfolded in the coming weeks as we move through the book. But what does God intend for us to get from this section, this opening exchange of Habakkuk speaking and then God speaking? Verses 1 to 11. What does he have for us here? Well, this section, I think, serves to set the table and to get the main issues out in front of us here. Let me put it in the form of a question, and then we'll look at two opposite possible answers to this question that come up from this section. The main question behind this passage is, is God trustworthy when he says that he is righteous and just? That's the question in Habakkuk's mind. Can God be trusted? Can I resolutely trust him when all the circumstances of life right around me say no? Can I trust him or not? But it's more than just an intellectual question. It's not something he's just studying in a classroom. It's a very existential question, a question that affects the living of life, being. You see, if your spouse or your neighbor or some government official is untrustworthy, it's not good, but it's not the end of the world. You just learn to deal with that. Maybe you don't trust certain things to them or you avoid them. But if God has misrepresented himself, is not who he said he is, is not righteous and just, we have a huge problem. This is an important question. It's a critical question. And it's front and center here in this first exchange. Is God trustworthy when he says that he's righteous and just? This passage, I think, highlights two possible answers to that question. Neither one of them is stated very bluntly, but I think they're both implied. The first possible answer to the question is primarily hinted at in verses 2 to 4. You look around at life and you ask, based on the evidence at hand, is God righteous and just? And oftentimes what you see says, no, he is not. 
That's what Habakkuk is wrestling with. The experience of his life seems to answer the question, no, he is not righteous and just. And when he says he is, he is misrepresenting himself and he is untrustworthy. Here's his dilemma. Picture it kind of like this. The prophet has a quiet time every morning. Alone in his den, in his house, and he reads the Bible. And, and certainly he reads from a number of different places, but perhaps one morning he reads from what we know as Psalm 97. He reads verse 1, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. God reigns sovereign, is in absolute control over all of the earth, over every single thing. He reigns, and that is to lead to the delight of all of the earth. That is a great thing. And then he keeps reading verse 2, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This reigning God seated on his throne, what's at the very foundation, what's at the basis of that throne? The Bible says righteousness and justice. His reigning, his control over everything is based on that. It's explicitly described that way, right there. Righteousness, rightness, purity, the opposition to evil, the casting off of wickedness. The support of, the doing of, all things good and pure and holy. And that word holy catches in his mind and he remembers a vision that he heard related from another prophet, prophet Isaiah. He remembers how Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne in the heavenly throne room. He saw him. that The whole room was filled with his majestic train, his robe if you will. Smoke was everywhere and the angels were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It was a majestic, awesome scene. He is holy and right and pure. That is who He is. The enemy of evil. This comes to His mind and He ponders it and then He keeps on reading in Psalm 97. Fire goes out before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. He is an enemy of evil. And his foes had better watch out. Keeps reading, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. It's the anthem of his kingdom. The skies sing out, the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. Hallelujah to that. The Zion and the daughters of Judah, that's where Habakkuk is at the moment, in Judah, on Zion's hill. The, the daughters of Judah sing out and they rejoice at his judgments. Same word translated justice in Habakkuk 1 verse 4. They look at God's just judgments and they say, Hallelujah! What a great God we have! He is holy and righteous and just and he carries it out. He destroys our adversaries. He keeps on reading. There's more of the same on down to the rest of the psalm. What a moving gripping picture of this reigning God. And so Habakkuk closes by saying a prayer of thanksgiving, rejoicing that that is who his God is. He's holy and just and righteous, and he reigns over all things. And he closes up his Bible, and he gets up, and he leaves his den, and he leaves his home, and he heads out into the street. Perhaps he's on the way to the market, or maybe he's going to work. As he walks through the street and observes things and hears the gossip and hears the day's news, it does not take very long at all for him to begin thinking, what in the world is going on here?
Perhaps he walked past any number of idols. Real, concrete, tangible idols built out of wood or precious stones or metal that the so-called people of God had built, had set up in the city and were bowing down to. Perhaps he walked past them. Maybe he heard the, the morning gossip about how the son of the high priest, the son of the high priest, had beaten and imprisoned the prophet Jeremiah. Perhaps the news that he heard in the market was about how the children of Israel were being physically burned alive as offerings in the valley of Hinnom. Perhaps people were making fun of the temple prostitution going on. Maybe it was just plain old injustice. The powerful getting their way with the weak, the rich abusing the poor. Who knows? Could have been any, probably was all of those things. People talking about the law, once handed down from a smoking Sinai, now turned into their tool to justify all this evil. In Jerusalem itself. Whatever it was that day or, or those days, day after day, Habakkuk looked around and he prayed and he called out to and he cried out to in growing desperation, righteous and holy and just God of Israel, help, save, do something about this. And day after day, nothing. Not for days, not for years, nothing. Has that ever been you? You read your Bible, read your Bible, and you look at your life, and the two just don't seem to connect. They're like two ropes that are both just a little bit too short. You read in the Bible about this great God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Holy is his name. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And then you look at your life and he just does not seem to be engaged with the wickedness going on amongst his people in 600 B.C. Jerusalem. He doesn't seem to connect with the genocide in Rwanda when people are slaughtered in church buildings. Where is he today when his church is persecuted in Indonesia? Where was he when evil clearly triumphed on 9-11? Where is he when all of these things, hardship and suffering and pain and loss, strike much closer to home, strike you or your children? Where is he? Has that ever been you? Ever wrestled with this? Is God trustworthy when he says that he is righteous and just? Oftentimes the experience of life says no. Sit in any philosophy 101 class in any secular university and the professor will say no. Many things in life are experientially very hard to connect to God as he is described in the Bible.
Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? That's Habakkuk's question. It's verse 3. And he's a prophet. And notice that God never chastises him for bringing that up. Doesn't take him out to the woodshed so you never should have asked that. Even given his tone, Habakkuk is not being meek here. This is not a, a mild-mannered, pardon me, Lord, if you have a moment, may I ask you a question? This is something I'm struggling with a little bit. His how long, O oh Lord, is his way of saying, it's about time. Don't you see? Is his way of saying, are you blind? Are you deaf? Habakkuk is dealing with real life here, real painful life. It's coming out like that. It's a little raw. It's no classroom exercise. He's looking at a life that says, no, God is not trustworthy when he says that he's righteous and just. And Habakkuk has a problem with this. Wickedness reigns everywhere that he looks. It reigns all down here. That's not supposed to be. There's no justice going on. And it strongly is affecting him. Personally. Maybe it's strongly affecting you. Personally. Maybe this question isn't a problem for you right now, but it has been in the past, or maybe it will be one day in the future. It's an important issue. Much in life can be interpreted by our fallen hearts that want to interpret it this way anyway, much in life can be interpreted to say, no, he is not trustworthy. When he says that he's righteous and just, he's not telling the truth. He's lying, even. Right down here, right at the bottom level where life is lived, amidst the mess, rubber meets the road, so to speak, this is the issue raised in this passage. It's an issue of faith. It's an issue of trust. Habakkuk's questioning and his complaining is full of confusion and pain and frustration. And it also is shot through with faith. Plenty other people in his day and plenty of people in our day would look at those circumstances and did and do say, Psst, I'm out of here. There is no way on earth you're going to convince me to trust this God. It's not quite Habakkuk's response, though. He keeps dealing with him. If you're looking for just if you're just looking for an excuse to get rid of this God, to let go of that rope, you found it right here. You found it. Life is full of hardship. It seems hard to put these together. Go ahead, let go of it. But if you're looking for an answer to this dilemma, then it's helpful to notice what Habakkuk does. Observing what he does will be helpful in answering how we should handle this situation. He's got a problem there, clearly. These things don't fit together. And the Philosophy 101 professor will tell you, they don't fit together. You have to let go of one or the other. You should let go of the God of the Bible. Do, therefore he doesn't exist. That's his answer. Some Christians want to let go of the genuine life experience rope. Either by sticking their heads in the sand and denying that that happens. 
perhaps aided by an insulated American Christianity that doesn't suffer. Or perhaps they put on a, a little twist to that and say that, yes, those things happen, but it's because you don't walk with God. It's a problem with faith or something like that. God is righteous and just and holy, and if you just followed his precepts and obeyed him, then things would work out well for you. And in so doing, they become the modern counselors of Job. Misguided, not a help. Habakkuk does not go to either of those two extremes. He, still, he holds on to both ropes. He stands there and he holds them in tension. And with as much faith as he can muster, he keeps looking at the face of God and asking him, What's the deal? I can't put these things together. They don't work. Help me. Fix this situation. Explain this, would you? He's talking to God. He's looking at the right face. He sees a lot right here, but he keeps looking up. It's all directed to the Lord, not to someone else. Your word says that you are righteous and just and holy and all good and all loving, all powerful, you reign, but life seems to say that you're not. Help me put these things together. I can't hold on much longer. Would you explain this to me, God? That's hard. It is hard to stand there in that tension. It's what he does. It's what we must do when we find ourselves in that situation. To hold on to them and speak to the Lord about it. God, help. It's a question of faith. Faith talks to God and says, help me here. Please. May God give grace to you to respond like that when you're experiencing this tension. That's what we most need because that tension will come. We're all going to have a moment or moments or periods in life when, like the little child that crawls up to the precipice and looks into the hole, realize, we all are going to realize that life is full of hardship and pain and loss and stuff that should not be here. We're going to look into the pit, look at the parent, Look at the fallen world and look at the Father and ask God, help. May He give you grace to look at Him, keep looking at Him, and not get totally focused on this. That's what we need to do. We need to look at Him and ask Him. Much in life is a challenge to faith. And much in life is a challenge to faith in a God who says, I'm righteous and just. There is much in us that wants to say, no, you are not. You have not dealt with evil. And if you keep talking to God, eventually he's going to say, haven't I? God, you can't be righteous and just because you're just letting all this go on and you haven't dealt with it. Haven't I? Is that true? Because there is another possible way you could answer this question. It's in the second part of the passage. It's the second point. In verse 5, God suddenly speaks. The silence has gone on and on, and Habakkuk is holding these two things in tension just about as long as he possibly can. He's just about to lose it. God finally breaks the silence and speaks to him. But at first, God's answer does not seem to be any help. It doesn't seem to tie these ropes together. It seems to push them even further apart. How can the wicked Chaldeans, the wicked Babylonians, be any answer to a cry for justice? 
How can that be? Well, they are an answer because of what their appearing points us towards. There's a second answer here. Let me try to explain. Let me give it to you first, and I'll try to explain where I get it from. The first answer to the question, is he trustworthy? The first possible answer was no. Look at the experiences of life. Look at what's going on here. But the second answer is, is he trustworthy? Is he righteous and just? Yes. Because look at the plan of redemption. Is he being honest when he says that he is righteous and just? And the second answer is absolutely yes. Look at the plan of redemption. Here's where I see this. First, I note that God speaks, finally. He says something. And I expect that if I've been crying out to God and he says something, that somehow the two things relate. And so I want to think about it. I'm trying to work on how do those things connect? How is that an answer to my dilemma here? So I'm expecting some connection here. But it's hard to figure that out because, frankly, you know, we don't need any more bad guys around here. Those guys are going to come in and they're going to wipe this place out and we're all going to suffer. How does this connect? I think it does, but it's hard to see how it does. Well, let's look a little more closely. Look what God calls Habakkuk and the people to do. He calls them to look, to lift up their eyes. And if you want to use this metaphor, we're all looking down here at the experiences of life, and he says, lift up your eyes and look. And he points them to look out among the nations. And as the book goes on, he's going to call Habakkuk and company to look out across all the ages of time because there is something bigger going on. God's perspective is much broader than just this. It's not meant to eliminate our perspective, but it's meant to expand it. Look, Habakkuk. Look, all you people. And consider a bigger thing that I am doing. I am and I will. From our perspective, he would say to us, I have and I will. To Habakkuk, he says, I am and I will deal with evil and establish righteousness. I am and I will. And as part of that, I am bringing Babylon. I am bringing judgment. And that should be an encouragement to you righteous ones. It should be an encouragement to trust me. How is that? Well, Habakkuk chapter 1 does not exist in a vacuum. We just dropped right into it and read it. But Habakkuk chapter 1 and the year 600 B.C. exists in a continuum of time. There is a 601 and there is a 599. There's a context here that we need to grasp. It sits in the flow of God's historical dealings with his people, his fallen creation. Think back for a minute. Let's jump back to the Garden of Eden. Evil and righteousness and wickedness first entered into the creation whenever it was that Satan and his company decided to reject God and fell into sin. And it came into our world when Adam first took the fruit and ate of it with Eve. From that moment, we, all, we people have been fallen in sin and the creation has been cursed along with us. 
And immediately from that moment on, God instituted and began to work out his eternal plan of redemption. He'd had a plan for eternity past, and he began it right there. And by plan of redemption, what I mean is that God had a plan. He had a grand idea about how he was going to redeem, to acquire back for himself a holy, worshiping people who would live in a pure and clean and just world. He had a plan for how to do that. And he implemented it right after the fall into sin. I can only briefly touch on some of the high points of that plan as they relate to Israel. And remember, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to locate 600 B.C. in its context, in its historical context. So I'm going to give, give a couple little highlights. Around the year 2000 B.C., 2000, the Lord promised to Abraham a people and a land flowing with milk and honey. He said, there's this great land, and I promise it to you and your children forever if you will walk before me and be blameless. If not, I'm going to kick you out. If you walk before me and be blameless. The people grew and, and they multiplied. They traveled to Egypt. They were enslaved. And then 500 years later approximately, under the hand of Moses, the Lord delivered them out from bondage carried them out, a vast people now, carrying them back towards this land he had promised them. And he provided himself to them. He provided a way for them to relate to him personally. If they were properly covered by the blood sacrifices, in a tabernacle first, and then later in a temple, he gave them a capital city where his presence dwelt, and they could have access to him through blood. And 500 years again later, about 1,000 B.C., King David sat on the throne and God spoke to him and said, David, in you, you reign from the tribe of Judah and I'm going to fulfill the prophecy from Genesis. I'm going to bring one out of you generations from now to whom the scepter rightly belongs, the king's scepter, his sign of rule and authority. I'm going to bring the Messiah out of you, David. And your sons, on down after generation after generation, will sit on this throne if they will keep my commandments. If not, I'll kick them off. That was God's plan. It's how he was working. Look up and see the big picture, Habakkuk. Look up and see, you peoples, across the ages and across the lands, the Lord has been advancing piece by piece by piece this great plan of redemption, making for himself children of Abraham, making a land for them, making access to himself for them, reigned over by a priest, giving them a just and great and powerful king who would enforce righteousness and be their champion against all evil. That's what he's been doing. God's old system... God's people in God's land with God's provision for sin under God's king. And now, as Habakkuk, around the year 600 B.C., looks back at this 1,400-year-long endeavor, back to about 2,000, this 1,400-year-long endeavor is all coming to a head right here in 600. And it is a complete failure. And it is a complete success.
both at the same time. How's that? More specifically, can we stay on point about how this is helpful and encouraging to me to trust the Lord? It's a complete failure in that every physical piece of this system implemented bit by bit by bit to improve upon over time, every single physical piece of this system has been utterly proven inadequate. 1,400 years, a millennium and a half has been plenty of time. The sacrifices never were able to permanently put off sin and they were never able to in themselves cleanse the heart. And so the people were always, for 1,400 years, were always prone to wickedness and idolatry and evil. Always. Priests weren't any better. And the king, well, yeah, there were bright spots, but more often than not, the king himself, as was going on with Jehoiakim during Habakkuk's time, the king himself led the people into wickedness and idolatry. It didn't work. That's what was going on right then at the moment. The old system has been shown to fail. And God's promised judgment on it is coming. And that failure is its greatest success. The message has been delivered clearly and thoroughly proven. The old system does not work. It is inadequate. A new one is needed. And at the same time that Habakkuk is writing these words of anguish across town, so to speak, his contemporary Jeremiah is writing, A time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A new covenant, not like the old one that I made with their fathers, for they broke that covenant. Yeah, no kidding. They broke that covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to write the law on their hearts. I'm doing something new. In summoning the Chaldeans to come up to Jerusalem, the Lord is putting a gigantic period on one 1,400-year-long sentence. And at the same time, He's starting a new one. He's starting a new story, a new system. He's going to make a new covenant with a new temple and a new sacrifice and a new king. Now, we know far more than Habakkuk knew. Right here in chapter 1, Habakkuk doesn't know much at all. As the book keeps going on, he's going to learn more and more and more. He's going to see more of the Lord's plan. But even by the end of the book, we still are going to know far more than Habakkuk knew. We know the details of this new covenant. We know who the new temple is. We know who the new sacrifice is. We know who the new priest is. We know who the new Davidic king is. We know that he will be no Jehoiakim. He is righteousness and justice. So we sit here looking down at our fallen world and up at the Father, trying to figure out what to do. Can he be trusted? Do these two ropes connect or not? God, help. If we look to God and ask him, even desperately, if we keep talking to him and say, Help! What's the deal? How does this work? Your declared nature does not seem to fit with what I see in the world. How can that be? He will respond to us, look and be astounded. I am doing something that you will not believe. I send the Chaldeans to destroy the old system. And I send my son to implement a new one. A crucified Messiah you will not believe. I send my son 
to die on a wicked, evil Roman cross. These ropes don't connect, but his hands will stretch out and they will grab both ends of them. They will connect in him. They do connect in him. I have dealt with evil. I will deal with evil again. I have destroyed death by killing and then raising back to life him whom death could not hold. I have done it. To Habakkuk he says, I will. Take heart. In this world, child, I know you will have trouble because my plan is not finished yet. But I have overcome the world. You're right, I am God. I cannot let these things exist like this forever. But I am God and I can choose when and how I connect them. We look down and we look up to him. We look down and we look up to him. And what he's going to do is he's going to point us, he's going to point Habakkuk to the Chaldeans coming to judge this old system. He's going to point us to the cross and the empty tomb. The end of the old means the beginning of the new. And we know a lot about that. If you want to boil this down to one statement, to one summary statement, I think you can put it in this sentence. While being unorthodox, while being not what we would expect, God has dealt with evil. And God will deal with evil. In so doing, he's shown himself righteous and just can and you should trust him. God has dealt with evil. Trust him. We're going to now take some time to pray, to meditate on how God has dealt with evil. Not all the questions are answered. They won't ever be. We're people. But he points us to the cross and says, there's the best answer. It's the only answer that you need. So spend some time now as we move towards communion where we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember his death. Take some time and pray silently to yourself, thanking him for the cross, dealing with him on whatever you need to deal with him on. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.